from James chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. These are the words of God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you and worship this morning. We thank you that we can sit beneath your word. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would empower it by your Holy Spirit. Open the ears and the hearts of everyone here to receive it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is good to be back up here preaching uh, from the pulpit this morning. It has been a while. I think it's been three months or so since I was able to preach. Uh, my dad is on a couple of trips, so you can keep him in your prayers as you, uh, for over these next couple of weeks, he's down in California this Lord's Day, uh, preaching at our sister church in Santa Clarita, and then he'll be at the church in Centralia next weekend. So please keep uh, them in your prayers as they travel and as he preaches at those other congregations. The Christians of the fledgling first century church were scattered abroad by persecution from the unbelieving Jews. And this is the audience that James writes to in this letter. They had been scattered abroad. They had been persecuted by those uh, same authorities that had put to death the Lord Jesus. And James writes to them in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of them being scattered around, uh, around Judea and Samaria and beyond... He writes to them a letter that, as we read through it, as you study it, it really is a stirring letter, a call to faithfulness in the midst of these persecutions. And James writes to them knowing that they would be tempted to deal with their suffering in a number of ungodly ways. He knows the temptations that they would have that when, when faced with their trials. In the midst of these trials, they, James knows, and the people knew, and we know, that it is easy to give in and doubt that God will deliver. And many of us are not under direct persecution, but even so, when we are faced with our own trials, with our own opportunities to suffer for Christ, or to suffer just in God's providence, we know it can be easy to give in and doubt that God will deliver, that he will uh, come and deliver us out of those circumstances or bring us through them. It is easy to give in to the sinful desires that sprout up from within. It is easy to give in and turn sometimes and even blame God in the midst of these trials. It is also easy to give in and vent our anger, whether it is at God himself or at others around us. These are all temptations that we face regularly when we are beset by various trials and temptations. And James here continues to show, as I've argued, as we've slowly worked through this book over the last number of months, James continues to argue that Christians instead should count it all joy by recalling the good and perfect gifts that come from our Heavenly Father. Uh, this, uh, many people look at the book of James and they see it as sort of a collection of um, almost random proverbial sayings that James puts together. 
But the more you study the book of James, the more you see that there are themes that run all the way through. It is all very densely connected, actually. And really, James' thesis statement for the book is in chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And the rest of the book is really defending that statement. How is it that Christians can count it all joy? Both the, the arguments for why that is the case, and then also the practical applications for how Christians are to count it all joy. I'd like to walk through a brief overview of the text that I read, make some comments on it, and then get into a few things more particularly. So first, James, if you have your Bibles open, look at this with me. Starting in James, verse 16. James begins this section. He addresses his audience again as my beloved brethren. You can see that James dearly, deeply cares for these people. He addresses them as his beloved brethren many times throughout the letter. And here he exhorts them um, to not be deceived. Uh, Some translate this as, do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not wander away. Do not be deceived. What is it that they should not be deceived about. Well, just previously, look up at verse 13. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. We talked a number of, uh, again, a few months ago, how James addresses these people and, and says, there's no excuse for your sin. There's no excuse for giving in to the temptations that come. And often we tend to excuse ourselves in a number of different ways. We'll talk about this more in a little bit. But at the root of all of that, when we're excusing our sin, what we're ultimately doing is we're blaming God. We're ultimately blaming God for our sin. And so James here reminds these people of this. and He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived by this and think that it, it is all right to blame God, to excuse our, our sin when we fall in the midst of temptations. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. While the situations are all from God, the situations in which we find ourselves tempted, the responsibility for sin falls squarely on man's shoulders alone. It is only our responsibility at the end of the day. But God is no miser. It's not just that he gives us hard circumstances in which we are tempted and tested. But rather, James reminds us that every good and perfect gift comes from him. This is verse 17. James says that God is the unchanging and constant father of lights. He's the father of lights with whom there is no variation, there's no change, there's no shadow of turning. Uh, if If we look up in the sky at night and we see all the lights of the sky, in one sense they look very constant to us, but in another sense they also are constantly changing, right? The constellations from our perspective are changing through the seasons and even through the evening, right? Things change. But God is not like that. He is the father of all the lights. He is the unchanging one from whom everything that changes comes. He is unchanging. He is constant. And the greatest of the gifts that he has given to his children is that he has begotten them by means of the gospel. And this is what James calls out in verse 18. James says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth being Christ himself or the message of the gospel that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is encouraging the saints that they are a kind of first fruits of the full harvest that God is going to bring in. They are just the beginning. It's just the beginning of the work that God is going to do in this world. 
And then it's on this ground, on this foundation that James exhorts the saints that have been scattered abroad to guard against anger, which will not bring about righteousness. This is verses 19 and 20. And so they must put off, James says, the filthiness and the overflow of that wicked anger, that overflow of their wickedness in blaming God and getting angry about their situations. And instead, they ought to welcome and nurture with meekness, James says. Or we might put it this way, with the quiet strength of Jesus, the gospel that has been given to them. This is what they are to do instead of giving in to the anger which Uh, is pent up within them. I want to talk for a moment about this phrase, uh, not for a moment, for uh, spend a little while here, on the, the idea of every good and perfect gift. Again, in our sinful nature, as James indicates in the, in the verses previous, we want to shift the blame for our sin. This is a natural human, a fallen human reaction. We want to shift the blame for our sin to anyone or anything at hand, Right? Remember Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve disobey God. God shows up. They hide. Where are you, Adam? Not because God didn't know where Adam was, but because he was testing Adam. And Adam reveals himself, and then he quickly shifts the blame to the woman. The woman that you gave me, she gave to me, and then I ate. And subtly also shifts the blame to God. The woman that you gave me, God... This is the, the way that humankind first reacted to being confronted with our sin. The very first way that humankind reacted to being confronted with our sin is to turn and accuse somebody else and also accuse God. This is, this is sort of coded into our fallen nature. James has reminded his audience, though, that their sin originates from their internal sinful desires. Remember in verse 14, James says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin and the effects of sin are not uh, authored by God. They are authored by our sinful hearts. Now, God is sovereign over all of it, and he, and he does place us in circumstances the kinds of circumstances that we in our sinfulness would like to blame instead of taking responsibility for our sin. But it is not God who is doing the tempting. It is not God who is guilty of the sin. It is just our hearts. And so James here argues, instead of trying to blame God, Christians should remember that every good gift comes from God. Every good gift comes from God. This is something that you are to remember in the face of temptation. When you are tempted to sin and you're tempted to give in to sin, instead of turning and accusing God for placing you in that situation, or when you are tempted to give up and doubt God because of the trial that you are in, instead of turning and accusing God for that trial, remember, every good gift comes from God. We have wonderful examples of this kind of thing in Scripture. Remember um, Israel leaving uh, Egypt in the Exodus. They come to the edge of the Red Sea. They've just watched God destroy Egypt. They've watched God deliver them out of the hand of Pharaoh and, and make distinctions between the Egyptians and the Israelites. He's merciful and kind and gracious to his people, and he's putting down their oppressors and bringing them out of Egypt, filling them with all kinds of good treasure. They come to the edge of the Red Sea, 
and they're stuck. And then Pharaoh shows up behind them with an army of chariots. And what does Israel do? Immediately they panic and they begin to accuse God of bringing them out into the wilderness just to die, completely forgetting all the good things that God had just done for them and all the power that he showed in Egypt. And then we know the story, God delivers them from Pharaoh there, parts the Red Sea, they pass through and they begin to wander into the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai. And again, they're in the wilderness and they're hungry and thirsty. And they turn and they complain to God about this particular trial that he's put them in. And they rail against God and they rail against Moses, completely forgetting the fact that he had just delivered them not out of Egypt only, but also at the edge of the Red Sea and demonstrated his power and his glory. And then God provides for them uh, water out of the rock. And then he provides miracle bread from heaven for them to eat. And he sustains them and he provides for them. And then they continue going on and they come to the edge of the land of Canaan. And they send the spies in to go see what's in the land. And they come back and they give a report saying, the, the, the people there are huge. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we can take this land. And the people believe the false report. They believe this report of, of fear. And they panic and they accuse Moses and they accuse God. And they say, you're just bringing us out here to die in the wilderness. Our, our women and our children are going to die too. We're going to all be slain by these giants. We might as well go back to Egypt. Completely forgetting that God delivered them out of Egypt by the ten plagues. Delivered them at the Red Sea. Delivered them by feeding them miracle bread from heaven and water from the rock in the wilderness. Forgetting all of the good things that God had given them. And we do exactly the same thing. When you're faced with a trial, or when you're faced with a temptation to give in to sin, what so often do we do? We completely forget all that God has given us. All the good things that he has given to us. All the ways in which he has provided for us, day in, day out. And we forget that, and think, well, God can't deliver me from this one. This one is too much. Where is God in the midst of this? Or tempted to give in to sin, we think, God, God can't really stop me from this sin. I, 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 I can't resist this any longer. I might as well give in. We do the same thing as the children of Israel over and over. But James says, no, we ought to remember that every good gift comes from above. It comes from the Father of lights. And that the greatest good gift that he gives to us is the grace that he's given us in salvation. The grace to face any trial, the grace to face any temptation in the power of the Spirit, knowing that Christ has died for our sins and, and thereby to continue to walk as children of light. This is really interesting if you look at verse 15. James makes the point that our sinful desires, when, they are, when they're coddled and they're given attention, they bring forth, this, there's this verbiage he uses of um, gi almost giving birth, right? They give birth to sin and they give birth to death. And then there's this great contrast that he gives us in verse 18. In contrast to the way that our sinful desires give birth to sin and give birth to death, instead, God, of his own will, brought us forth, begot us. How? By the word of truth. 
by means of the gospel. This is the, this is the first and foremost good gift that James wants people to have in their minds in the midst of their trials and sufferings. God, by his own will, brought you forth. Like Paul says in Romans, if God is for us, who can stand against us? This has to be in the forefront of our minds and is the foundation by which we resist temptation, by which we resist doubting God when tested, and by which we resist accusing God. God is the unchanging Father of lights, and we walk as children of that light. Paul says in Ephesians 5, to walk, as, walk in the light as children of the light. And we do this remembering what he has done by means of the word of truth, and, and so much more, by means of the gospel, but then so much more beyond that. The good gifts that God has given you of your family, of your friends, of a full pantry, of providing for you time and time again, of good friends, good food, good drink, a place to sleep. All of these good gifts that God has given you, do you remember them and give thanks for them when faced with trials or temptations? And when we do this, when we live like this, this is, I think, part of what Jesus is getting at when he says, you are the light of the world, let your light shine before men. What are the good works that God has called us to do? Well, some of those good works by which our light shines is to give thanks for the good gifts that God has given us when we are faced with trials and temptations. That is living as children of the light and the world notices. Now, there's something else about this that is worth meditating on. When does the light of the gospel shine forth the brightest in the children of light? I would submit that, that we see the light of the gospel at work the most when the children of light are undergoing trials and responding in a way that shows where their hope is. We have many people in this congregation that have gone through and are going through Hard, hard trials. And you know, either of those people or other people that you know, that they've gone through hard trials, and when they have remained steadfast and cried out to God and turned to God in their affliction, and you, and you see the hope that is in them uh, manifesting itself forth because of the trial, right? because of that particular difficulty that God has placed them in, and the light of the gospel is shining forth all the more. There is nothing like that. The light shines the brightest when God places us in dark circumstances. One of the greatest witnesses of Christ is when Christians count it all joy in the face of the tests that God brings them. Now, how do we do this? Well, again, in part we remember the good gifts that God has given us. But there's something else here too. We also need to remember what God has done for us and also that God is the author not only of every good gift, according to our measure, right? Sometimes we can see the good gifts very clearly. But James here also says every good and perfect gift. We've talked about this before. Look up at uh, verse 4 with me. Chapter 1, verse 4. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The Greek word for perfect here does not have the same uh, connotations that we have when we think of perfect. I've said this before, but we tend to think of perfect in sort of a sparkly Disney princess sort of way. 
That, that tends to be our, the connotations of perfect in our mind. Or perhaps maybe perfect like a perfect score on a math test. Everything is precisely right. That's not what the Greek word, uh, that's not the connotation that the Greek has. The connotation of the Greek, or maybe another translation would be more along the lines of mature or maturing. Okay, let patience have its maturing work that you may be made mature and complete, lacking nothing. Well, every good and every maturing gift, every gift of maturity, as one commentator puts it, comes from above, comes from the Father of lights. What are these gifts of maturity? These are the gifts, these are the hard gifts that God gives. It's easy to see the good gifts, and it's easy to see the, uh, the, the things that we recognize as good immediately and give thanks for them, but are the hard things that God gives, are those not good as well? Of course they are, but, but we don't identify them as that right away. And so James calls them perfect gifts, maturing gifts, gifts that bring you up, that grow you up in Christ. We are to see and rejoice in the good gifts that God brings and also the hard gifts that the Father uses to grow us up. If the Father is unchanging and he is unswerving, remember he's the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of change, shadow of turning. If that's true about God, and if that God has saved us by means of his Son, by means of the word of truth, then those that he has brought forth by his will can count it all joy in the face of various trials. As Paul says in Philippians 1, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Why? Because he is unchanging. When he begins a work, he sees it through to the end. And this is what Christians rest in, in the face of the dark, hard trials. Now James goes on and builds... uh, Uh, gets practical. He builds some practical application on top of this foundation. The foundation is um, you have been saved by the word of truth. You've been brought forth by the word of truth. This is a, a theological doctrinal truth. And this means that we can count it all joy in the face of trials. What does that look like? Well, part of what it looks like is what James says in verse 19. Remember, again, this, we need to keep this in mind as we look at these verses. We need to remember that um, uh, while James is written for us and it has much for us to learn from and much for us to apply to our lives, we have to re- remember that we are not the first and primary audience that James is writing to. He's writing to particular people that are faced with particular trials. He's writing to the persecuted church of the first century. He's writing to those that have had to flee from their homes, have watched loved ones be dragged off and put in prison because of their uh, profession to follow Christ. So remember that. Keep that in mind. It would be natural for these people to then give vent to their anger in the face of the injustice that has been done to them. What? Imagine for a moment what it would take for you to have to flee your home. What would it take, not just, uh, you know, oh, Washington is just nuts and I want to move to Idaho. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about. 
What, what makes you flee your home? Leave everything behind. It would be threats to your life or the lives of your children, the lives of your loved ones. You've probably already watched people be taken away, right? Jewish Christians are being disappeared by men like Saul. These are the people that James is writing to. Can you not imagine the temptation to just give vent to that anger of that injustice that you are watching and to take justice into your own hands? These are the people that James is writing to. I think some, some commentators say, and I think there's truth to this, James is writing to these people in part to calm them down. Don't, don't start riots. Don't go start fighting in the streets. God is in control. You can imagine that kind of anger that would be pent up. And James is, is diffusing this. James exhorts them then to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Slow to anger. Now, we also need to remember here that um, there are other parts of Scripture that teach us about righteous anger. Right? Um, we're to be slow to wrath, James says. And we're to imitate Jesus in that. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, but placed his trust in the one who would do justice. Right? In God who, ju who, who judges righteously. And that we're to imitate God. Psalm 103 tells us that um, the Lord God is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. But there are other passages that teach us about righteous anger. So um, we, ha we have instances of Jesus getting angry in his zeal for God's house. Paul tells us in Ephesians to be angry, a positive command, be angry and do not sin. So there are means by which we can be angry. But James' exhortation here to be slow to wrath, to be slow to anger, is very, very important for us. We need to be slow to wrath, imitating Jesus. And the, the, another interesting thing about this, if, if the instruction is to be slow to wrath, that means that anger is something that can be controlled. It can be tempered. It can be dialed, right? And that means that if you are the type of person that says, I get angry and I can't help it, James has, has some words for you. And he says, be slow to anger. It is simply not true that you can't help it. That you can't help the outburst of anger. That you can't help that, um, even if it's not an outward outburst of anger, that, that inward burning anger and bitterness. It's simply not true that you can't control it. That you can't hold on, that you can't deal with it before the Lord. James indicates that you can and that you must. We're to be slow to wrath. James says that we must be, that the people that he's speaking to, and us by extension, must be slow to speak. Why do we need to be slow to speak? Proverbs has lots of instructions for us about our tongue, the power of the tongue. But let's just look at one thing in James. Look at James chapter 3. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. There's perfect again, right? He's a mature man, able to bridle the whole body. 
And then James goes on and gives a couple of analogies and metaphors about the tongue. He says that the tongue is like a little, a little spark in a very dry forest. Seems like it's rather impotent, rather powerless, but it ignites these huge forest fires that we've seen. James says that it's like the rudder of a ship. It seems like a small, fairly insignificant part of the ship, right? It's not the sails, the big glorious sails. It's not the beautiful hull of the ship. It's just this little rudder. But what does it do? It steers the ship wherever it's going to go. Your tongue is like that. Your tongue, we, we, we're familiar with the idea that, um, you know, Jesus tells us out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? The mouth tells us what's going on in our heart, but it goes the other way as well. James tells us that your tongue steers what you do. If you are talking angrily all the time, well, guess what? You're going to give way to wrath. If you're talking filthily all the time, what's going to happen? It's going to drive you that direction. You're going to become filthy. You're going to act in a filthy way. We need to be slow to speak because the tongue is powerful. Proverbs tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Be slow to speak. Consider your speech. But James begins all of this by saying they must be swift to hear. Must be swift to hear. And in one sense, the application there, of course, is to be swift to hear those that you're interacting with. Don't be quick to judge. Don't be quick to jump to conclusions. Right? The, the great practical examples of this all the time. But uh, just to get the kids' attention. Kids, when your brother or sister is doing something, and let's say they have a toy that you, be- that you think belongs to you, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. You might not know that your parents actually told them to pick it up. You might not know the circumstances. You might not know what's going on, so be slow to speak and quick to listen. Right? Um, why do you have that? Well, listen to the response. Don't jump to the conclusion that you know that they stole it from you. They might not have. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Quick to hear. And of course, many applications for the adults in the room as well. Right? Don't jump to the conclusions of why your spouse said that. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Can you explain to me what was going on? Why, why did you talk that way? Why did you say that? Help me understand. Parents with your children, be quick to listen. Be quick to hear them out. But I think there's a... a a bigger application of this. And again, it has to do with what James wants them to remember. What is it that they need to hear over and over and over again? What is it that they need to be quick to hear that will keep them from giving into this wrath, this anger? They need to remember the grace of God that's been given to them. The grace of God that's been given to them in the midst of their suffering. You need to remember this too. You need to remember the grace of God that's been given to you in the midst of the, the trials, big or small, that you're faced with. You need to be quick to hear God's reminder that he's brought you forth by the power of his will and by the word of truth. When work is really hard and you just feel like you're done, 
and you're ready to get angry about it, you're going to snap at your wife or snap at the kids or kick the dog. No, I need to remember, actually, the grace that's been given to me. When traffic is horrible and you're inclined to just be enraged at the idiots on the road, no, you need to remember the grace of God that's been given to you and be slow to speak. We need to remember the grace of God that's been given to us when those children are disobeying again. They lied again. We forget that that's like part of the normal human sinful nature. They're going to do that. And we forget the grace that's been given to us, the grace that God has given to us for, to forgive us for our disobedience, for our lies. We need to be quick to hear these reminders because that's the foundation by which then we can be slow to wrath. What, what, um, if you are the kind of person that tends to um, be given over to anger at times, you're the kind of person that um, behind closed doors, you will just pop the lid. You need to cultivate this. Being quick to hear. Being quick to hear the reminders of the grace of God for you. Because that is the only thing that's going to ultimately keep you from spilling out that wicked anger on the people around you. God's grace, his goodness, his sovereignty over all things, including the trials that you are facing, is the bedrock truth when everything else is falling apart. And I mean this, again, in, in the big, the big lifelong, life-threatening trials that we face. Right? God's truth, God's sovereignty, God's goodness is the only thing that you can hold on to when everything else is falling apart. You have to be quick to hear. Remind yourself of that. But the same thing is true. That for some reason, this is always my favorite analogy for you know, those little trials, is stepping on the Legos or stepping on the army men in the dark in the middle of the night. And it's just pain like you don't... You know what I'm talking about? It shouldn't matter but it really does. And in that moment, I mean, it sounds silly, but, but think about it for a moment. It really doesn't matter. But something small like that happens, and we, we are inclined to just go off about it. But what if, you, what if you trained yourself to stop and say, no, no, God's grace is sufficient for me. I, I love what Eric said in the, the time for... Uh, corporate prayer, that, that we, we sometimes, we want God to just remove the circumstance. We don't actually want the grace to like see the circumstance through. I feel like that's very much the case in those little things, right? It, it doesn't matter, so I don't really want the grace to go through it like a Christian. I want to just vent my anger and be done with it. But, but what if we trained ourselves to say, no, God's grace is sufficient for me when my foot hurts because I stepped on the stupid Lego, what if, we, what if we trained ourselves to be slow to speak, slow to wrath in those little things because we were quick to listen, quick to hear? That's where God trains you for the big trials that come, for the big heavy trials where you need to practice these things too, but you've laid the groundwork by practicing it in these small things. 
James also gives a, a, a tactical reason for being slow to anger. Um, this is related to everything that we've been saying, but there's a, another take on it here. There's a couple different ways to understand precisely what James means by the righteousness of God in verse 20. James says, the, right, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's such a wonderful verse. You should all memorize it. There's a couple different ways to understand this idea of the righteousness of God. Different examples from other parts of scripture. But, but they're not exclusive of each other. Let me put it this way. A couple questions. When you are faced with a test. When you're faced with a trial. When you're faced with what James might call a perfect gift. How do you respond? When you give way to anger, does it, let's say that you respond in anger. Okay, you respond in giving in to that anger. Does it bear fruit so that you are living more in the way that God desires? When you give way to anger, does it result in you being a more godly person? obvious question, I think, right? We're told a number of places in scripture to put off wrath, to put off angry outbursts, right? To put these things away from us, to put them to death. Okay, on the other hand, or, sim or similarly, when you act or you speak in anger, when you give in to that temptation, does it tend to set things right in the situation? This is the other um, understanding of what righteousness of God means here. Righteousness of God can mean, the, um, some translations put it, the righteousness that God desires. It, that's, that's a good application there, right? Does it make you more righteous? Make you live more like Christ? But the other application is the righteousness of God being, being God's um, application of justice in this world. The word for righteousness and justice are, are uh, very, very much related. And Hebrews uses a, this idea of the righteousness of God or working righteousness when talking about the judges who are setting things right in Israel. When you speak in anger, does it, does it set things right? Look with me at Proverbs 15. Just one passage we'll turn to. Proverbs 15, verse 18. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. Okay, things are crazy in your home. Things are crazy in your home, and you give vent to your anger. Does it make things right? Does it make the situation good in the home? Things are, uh, you're having a, a, a tiff with your wife. You're not in fellowship. Things may be starting to escalate a little bit and you give in to the anger. Does that make everything better? Everybody calm down. No, we know that. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We know that from our own experience. We know that our, when we give in to anger, it, it doesn't make me a more righteous person and it doesn't fix the problems that I was angry about in the first place. Um, psychologists might tell you that sometimes you need to just go and vent your anger a little bit to you know, let the steam off. They're wrong. They're wrong. 
The Bible says that giving yourself to wrath like that does not produce the righteousness of God. The way we temper it is with reminding ourselves of the gospel. This is because, um, why, is, why is anger such a big deal in this passage? Aside from the, the practical application that the people that James is writing to were dealing with, right? The anger that they would be feeling because of the injustice that they're watching around them. Think about this also. Like I said um, a number of months ago and, and reminded you of this morning, when, whenever we blame or make excuses for our sin, whenever we turn the blame away from ourselves for our sin, at the end of that, behind all of that, we're blaming God, right? Because who brought you those circumstances? Who brought you those people that you want to blame for your sin? Well, God did. He's sovereign over all of it. And so when we make excuses for our sin, we're actually blaming God. The same thing is true about our anger. Any sinful anger in the end is directed at God. Right? My, my sinful, angry outburst because of the Lego, in the end, is, is directed at God. Now, I don't think of myself as being you know, the kind of person that's shaking their fist at God. There are people like that out there, right? We, you, know, you can go and find some of them on YouTube that are you know, spittingly angry at God. But most of you probably... Most of you sitting here probably um, uh, would not characterize yourself as somebody that's angry at God. But when you get angry, and when you give in to the, the temptation to sinfully be angry, to be discontent with the circumstances that God has brought you, and to give vent to your anger, well, you're angry at God behind all of that. Ultimately, it's not the Lego. Ultimately, it's God. He's the one that brought me that circumstance. And that, again, it's true for the small things and the big things. God is, at, God is the, the object, the target of our anger in an ultimate sense. And so because of this, James says, lay aside the filthiness of our sinful desires. He says this in verse 21. Lay aside the filthiness and the overflow of your wickedness, right? When you get all pent up in your anger and it just spills out of you, James says, we've got to set that aside. You need to, lay, you need to be done with it. You need to put it away. Put away this filthiness, this overflow of wickedness. And instead, what are we to do? We see this all the time in the New Testament. The, the apostles tell us to put off these sins and instead put on this gospel living. And that's what we're to do here. We're to put off the filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Okay, now, James is writing to Christians. So I don't think here what he's, what he's saying is you need to put off this filthiness and overflow of wickedness and instead receive the gospel and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as, as in it's the first time. But I think he is saying that you need to Receive the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ again and again and again and again. This is what will save you. This is what will deliver you. This is the means by which God will complete the work that he has begun in you. James says, lay aside the filthiness and, and said, welcome 
the implanted word, the word that has already been given to you, the gospel grace that you have. Christians need to receive and remember the truth of the gospel again and again. Jesus died for your sins, all of them. All of them. The guilt for all of those sins. It's done and paid for. There is nothing that you can do to make, that, to make it more paid for. It's done. And given that grace, now how do you live? Do you live standing on that grace? Do you live welcoming that grace? Do you live reminding yourself of that grace? This is what saves us from our sin and our foolishness in those moments of testing. This grace is implanted. It's already been given in the living hearts of believers and it is there for you in the face of every trial and every temptation. Uh, again, we, we tend to think of, oh, I need grace from God as though I need God to pour in a bunch of grace into me. No, God's already given you all the grace that you need. He's already given it to you. Are you welcoming it? Are you cultivating it? Or are you cultivating the anger? Are you cultivating the bitterness? Are you welcoming the grace that God has already poured out for you, already given to you? In closing, I want to think about just one, really one phrase that, that James has here that we sort of passed over. James says at the end of verse 18, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Um, we're told, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, and we're told in other places that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Okay, when, when Jesus rose from the dead, God um, began a new creation. God began to make all things new. Okay, and James, again, directs his readers indirectly, directs them to look to Christ and to watch Christ in the midst of their temptations to be angry. Jesus knew when to wield righteous anger. We talked about him being zealous for the house of God. He knew when to restrain his anger and to wait for the just judge to set everything right. James points the saints to imitate Christ by meekly welcoming the grace that's given to them instead of giving way to their ungodly passions. And James says, though, that they also are part of the first fruits of the great harvest that God had planned. Jesus is the forerunner of all of it. He's the firstborn. He's the first, the first fruit in that sense. But the early church, James says, was also the first fruits of the work that God was going to do. Why, why do they need to know this? Why do they need to know this when, when they're worried about being slaughtered? When they're watching their friends and family be taken away to prison? Why do they need to know that they're the first fruits of the gospel work that God is doing? Why does that matter? James teaches Christians to look past their own trials and temptations, looking to Christ first, but then also to look at what God is doing through history. God is making all things new. God is setting all things right. God is doing this over time, over the centuries, to bring about his kingdom. And, and you get to be a part of that. 
the church, the, the church in the first century got to be a part of that. They were the first fruits. God is grow, was growing them up for the particular place in the harvest that he had planned for them. And he's doing the same for you. God has you here in this time, in these days, in these circumstances, exactly where he wants you to be as part of the greatest story that's ever been told. Where God has you right now is, is part of his plan to save the world. Apparently, James thinks you, the people he's writing to and, and you by extension, you need to know that. That's part of resisting these temptations, being faithful through the trials. God is growing you up in your particular part of the harvest. So, th and here's the other thing, it doesn't end with you. Get your eyes off yourself, look to Christ. Get your eyes off yourself, look at the early church that went before you, that God preserved through everything that they went through. And look beyond yourself to the future. James wanted the early church to know that they were the first fruits. Why? Because there were going to be millions of Christians reading James, looking back at what they went through and how they counted it all joy in the midst of their trials. God has the same plan for you. You have the opportunity in the place where God has put you to be the kind of people that Christians hundreds and thousands of years from now will look back on and see God was faithful. I can trust God because I know what he did with his saints. I know what he's done with his saints through history. I know the work that God is doing to take over the world. It's all his. He's bringing his kingdom and we get to be a part of that. Every good and every, uh, every good gift and every gift of maturity, every hard gift comes from him. So in that perspective, count it all joy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that you have in it for us. Thank you for the instruction that you have for us. God, teach us to be a people that are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, but not because these are good practical steps, but because we're doing these things remembering the gift of your son who died for our sins and the grace that you've given us by the power of your Holy Spirit to face every trial, every temptation, to count all of it joy because we know the work that you are doing and we trust you in all of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.